Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. As we pick back up the Beatitudes this morning and we continue to reflect on the meaning of what Jesus says to us here, I'd like to begin by reminding you of something that we said last week. Just because Jesus makes a spiritual analogy doesn't mean that he's not speaking of the physical reality behind it. In fact, it's just the opposite. I'll give you an example. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 18, verse 3, Jesus is going to say these words. He'll say, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus says that, you'll be surprised to learn, no one in the audience, when they listen, suddenly realizes, oh wait, he means become like children spiritually. What a relief. I thought for a minute Jesus liked children and that we all were called to like children as well. Because, of course, Jesus isn't saying, no, 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 I don't like physical children, obviously. This is just an analogy. I want you to be like children spiritually. What Jesus is doing is using the physical state of childhood to teach us a lesson about a spiritual state that we should aspire to. Again, taking something he loves and inviting us to see how that thing teaches us a deeper lesson. He's doing the same thing here. He speaks of those who are poor, of the grieving, of the meek, of the hungry. There's a spiritual lesson that people in that condition have to teach to us. But we don't want to romanticize or sentimentalize that state of being. Jesus doesn't. Jesus isn't saying, oh, it's such a fine thing to be poor. Oh, it's such a wonderful, enlightening thing to mourn and to grieve. Oh, to be hungry brings you closer to me. It's good to be hungry. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is taking these realities of deprivation, these realities of dependence, and he's saying that in that experience, there's something valuable for you to learn. He's saying something like this. If you don't identify yourself with the poor, If you don't identify yourself with the grieving, with the meek, and with the hungry, then you don't know who you are. If you're not with them, you don't know yourself. That is a profound lesson that we need to come to terms with. In a sense, Jesus is saying, you are who you don't want to identify with. The people that you're afraid to be lumped in with, the people you don't want to be confused with, that's who you are. We tell ourselves, well, I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. I remember in a Bible study years ago, we were having this study, and the the Bible study leader was making an analogy. He was saying that, that we, spiritually speaking, are no better than those criminals in the penitentiary. And he waved his arm in the direction of the penitentiary, which here in our city enjoys a a nice sort of mountaintop location. It looks really lovely in the evening when it's all lit up. In fact, when I lived downtown, I used to gaze up at the penitentiary at night with the lights on and think, what a nice place to live. 
And uh, Lori looked at me with that look that was like, keep going the way you're going and you'll find out. (laughs) But again, not to romanticize it, but to think of the reality, right? That you're no better than criminals. And I remember somebody who was there saying, like, like under her breath, I mean, that's not true. I mean, I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. I'm not like a criminal. I mean, I haven't done what those people have done that have landed them in that predicament. I'm not perfect. Who's perfect? But I'm not like them. And in that moment, I felt really superior to that person because I was able to accept the spiritual lesson that she was not. That we were being told to think of ourselves spiritually as if we were like those criminals, like those lawbreakers. And uh, I understood that. I understood that as human beings, we're all fallen, that we're all sinful, that we are all that bad. That was easy for me. Because in real life, I don't have any anxiety about people mistaking me for a criminal. Like, I've been in jail. No, seriously, I've been in jail. And if you've read my book, Rethinking the World, you already know this. And if you're looking at me with astonishment, you haven't read my book. And you're in the majority. But I've been there. But even when I was there behind bars, I thought it should be obvious to everyone that I don't belong here. Just look at me. It's never been a concern of mine. But you know what? There are other kinds of misunderstandings that would affect my pride greatly. There are other classes of people that I wouldn't like you to confuse me with. I come from Louisiana. I'm a Southerner. In most situations, I wouldn't want you to think so. I wouldn't want to confuse me and and them. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I look at the church, when I look at the people who most vocally call themselves Christians, I live in fear that you might think I'm like them, that I'm one of those people. All of us have something we're afraid of being identified with, something we don't want to be classed with. When you are worried about that, about being lumped in with those despicable people, then you can understand the difficulty of what Jesus is calling us to hear. When you don't want to be identified with some lowly class of people, then it's much harder to accept these spiritual comparisons because of the shame that is attached to that identity. In the real world, poverty is something you want to hide. People who are poor in reality, not just in spirit, don't walk around letting you know. They try to pass as if they're one of you. They don't want you to see where their wants lie. They don't want to be associated as one of the poor When people grieve, when they truly grieve and mourn, there is a sense in which they're set apart from the rest of us. Even when we feel with them, we sympathize for that loss, there's only so much grieving that you can take. It's incredible to me to see that loving and compassionate people who will be there for you in the first moments of grief, a year later, if you still haven't gotten over it, will think there's something wrong. And you need to move on. We can only take so much of that loss. It's as if we're afraid if we spend too much time with it, it might rub off. We too might become that way. 
When you think about how you want other people to perceive you, we want to be perceived as strong. We want to be seen as independent people, as assertive, as self-confident, not humble, not meek. Because humble and meek people get walked all over. They lose their rights because they don't stand up for them. That's not how you want to live your life or you'll lose what you have. Real hunger. Real deprivation. To actually know what it's like to want the most basic of necessities. You don't want that for yourself. When you experience it, you don't want people to know. You certainly don't aspire to that for your children. No, of course not. These ways of being, these ways of living are all things that if we're honest with ourselves, the only way we want to experience these things is spiritually. We do not want to experience them physically, in reality. And if we do, we do everything we can to not to be associated with them. Jesus is saying to us that you are the very thing that you don't want to be identified with. You are the very thing that you're trying to hide. And if you think about it that way, isn't there some comfort there? That as hard as we strive to conceal our neediness, as hard as we try to hide our dependence, isn't it a relief to have Jesus speak the Beatitudes and to know that it's okay to admit when you're poor, that it's okay to admit when you're grieving, when you're mourning, that it's okay to be meek, that it is okay to be hungry and to be thirsty. That in front of Jesus, you can't hide these things about yourself. That's the bad news. You can't conceal your true state, your true identity. That can be terrifying. When you contemplate the reality that in the face of a holy God, we cannot hide who we are. But isn't it also a relief to realize that where sin is concerned, you don't have to hide who you are. Jesus is the one person you cannot conceal it from and do not need to. Because it is exactly to people who find themselves in that state that you don't want to identify with Jesus pronounces these words of blessing. If you want to understand your condition, if you want to understand where you're at spiritually, then look at what you don't want to be identified with. Learn from who you don't want to be confused for. That's what Jesus is saying. When he writes about these first Beatitudes, Sinclair Ferguson says, that the Beatitudes describe the Christian as one who is poor in spirit, who mourns and is meek. There's a common element, he says, in these characteristics. It is the recognition that what we are in the presence of God is what we are. No more, no less. In other words, you are who you are before God. Your identity who you are in your deepest core. You are who you are before God. And how you stand before God is how you stand. That's not always a comforting thought. Because spiritually speaking, we bring nothing to the table. Ferguson goes on to say that Jesus is describing the person who sees his spiritual bondage, is conscious of the debt of his sins, 
and knows that in himself he is dispossessed before God. He is dispossessed before God. That's who you are before God. Now, this isn't a new way of thinking about ourselves. It's not a new way for God to speak about his people. In fact, throughout Scripture, the people of God are addressed in these terms, are called to as the poor. God's people have always been, in Peter's terms, his chosen exiles, his outcasts. Despite the fact of God's favor in the eyes of the world, they are always contemptible. We just sang in Psalm 34 these words where the psalmist identifies himself with the poor. We sang the words, we heard them cried aloud. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. That's not an isolated incident. The Psalms, even though a lot of them were written by a literal king, the psalmist sees himself as poor, as impoverished, as embattled. In Psalm 40, he writes, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. How does he see himself? Despite his crown, despite the respect or the fear that men show him, he sees himself as he is before God. He knows himself to be who he is in the presence of God, poor and needy. And when we realize our standing before a holy God, we realize not only are we poor, but we have reason to grieve. We mourn the fact of our sin. As Paul does in Romans seven twenty four, when he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's not a rhetorical flourish. It's Paul seeing himself for who he is as he stands before God, recognizing you may be an apostle. You may be the one that the Holy Spirit uses to write a whole chunk of the New Testament. But as you stand before God, you stand dispossessed. You stand poor and needy. And you mourn that fact, wretched man that I am. Another way of putting it is this. To be poor in spirit, to possess this spiritual quality that Jesus is talking about, is essentially to have the spirit of the prodigal son. When Jesus relates that parable, the prodigal son is the one who comes to himself, who recognizes his poverty, who mourns the sin that brought him there, who returns to the Father and throws himself upon the mercy of the Father and expects to be dealt with however the Father pleases to deal with him. That spirit is the spirit that Jesus is describing That is who we are before God. So if you think about it that way, the Beatitudes taken together are describing to us what we might think of as like spiritual realizations. Understanding of who we are that we come to, that we come to realize. You can see there's a progression to these layers of recognition as well. They kind of build one on top of the other. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And you think about that poverty. 
You might say to yourself, I am truly dispossessed. I truly do bring nothing to the table. I truly do have no good, righteous, meritorious aspect of myself that can argue for me. I don't have anything that I can chip in when it comes to my salvation. I have nothing. And in those words, we come to realize we are poor in spirit. A consciousness of sin conjures mourning. The kind of grieving that is in view here is is not just bereavement, although bereavement is an aspect of it. It's specifically a kind of grief that reflects the, the brokenness or the fallenness of the world. It's helpful for us to remember that. We grieve, we mourn. When we lose people, we care about. The reason that we lose people that we care about is because of the consequences of sin, because of the reign of sin and death that we live in. All of these things are tied together. The reason why we grieve physically is ultimately because of sin. And the reason why we grieve spiritually is because of our sin, which separates us from God. To mourn is to grieve at my failure. I mourn the loss of a right relation with God, a right relation with my fellow human beings, a right relation with the world. I'm conscious of the brokenness, not only within me, but all around me. And it, it makes me weep. It makes me grieve at the state of things. Meekness is one of those things that sounds like a virtue, but as we said last week, you don't want to think of meekness as something that's cultivated as much as it is something that is instilled. Not being humble, but being humbled. You see the distinction. Those who are meek have been humbled. I say that I've been humbled. I realize that I'm wholly dependent on God. And that's the key. To be humbled truly is to recognize no inner resource, nothing to rely on, no inner strength that I can turn to. But I am depending on someone outside of myself, depending on God. And you can see the progression there, right? There's a realization, a realization of poverty, of 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 depravity even. There's a mourning, a repentance that follows that realization, and it leads to a humbling, a humble reliance upon the power of God. That too has a consequence. It leads to hunger, but a different kind of hunger than we're accustomed to. Because now I feel a hunger, a longing for something new, a hunger for righteousness, a hunger for justice, a hunger for a restored relation between me and God, a restored relation between me and you, a restored relation between us and the world that we live in. That's the hunger that he has placed within us. If you think about that progression, you're like, oh, okay, so there's a realization of our state in the presence of God, followed by repentance for our sin and and a, a humble reliance upon God, which leads to a thirst and a hunger for righteousness that makes it sound really easy, like we're just kind of following some steps of spiritual realization. But the fact is, it's hard. The fact is, it's impossible to come to these realizations apart from God's grace. We struggle with a sense of who we are. 
We struggle to define ourselves, and we're encouraged to define ourselves. We're told that the only person who has the power to define us is us. And although we tell ourselves that that is an unparalleled freedom for human beings to enjoy, we don't experience it as freedom. We experience it as a crisis. Because the fact is, we are who we are before God. You are who you are before God. When God shows us who we are, when he shows us through trial, through hardship, and through testing, that is grace. That is what grace really looks like. God revealing us to ourselves. But consider this. If that was as far as it went, if that was as much as Jesus was trying to say here, what you'd be left with is a kind of stoicism. right? It would be as if Jesus was saying, you are poor, you are grieving, you are meek, and you are hungry, and you need to make peace with that. It's not good to be these things. It's actually terrible to be these things, but at least you're not self-deceived like everybody else. You can face up to the, the, the terrible reality of life, and in the face of that reality, in that honesty, there is virtue. That's something anyway. Marcus Aurelius would tell you that. You could read his meditations and you would find that wisdom there. But Jesus is going farther than Marcus Aurelius would. Jesus isn't just saying, you're terrible. You need to acknowledge that fact and at least then you'll be honest. Jesus is actually saying more than that. Yes, it's true. You are who you are before God. But Jesus is saying, you are who you are in Christ. That makes a big difference. You are, as Jesus says, blessed. I love the fact that Jesus gives us more than just a dose of reality. Jesus gives us much more than that. He doesn't say, hey, you may have a full purse. You may have a lot of stuff, but spiritually you're actually broke. He says that, but he says more than that. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the broke. That's what he's saying. There's good news for you. Well, it's true that you are who you are before God. You are who you are in Christ as well. In other words, who you are before God has changed. When you are in Christ, who you are before God is transformed. Who you are in Christ, in a weird way, is the opposite of all of the things that we've come to realize Who you are in Christ is who he declares you to be in your blessedness. To those who know themselves to be dispossessed, Christ promises them possession. He says those who are poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom. Those who have nothing will have everything. Those who have no belongings, everything will belong to them. That's the blessedness that he pronounces upon them. To those who grieve their sin, He promises spiritual healing. He says those who mourn shall be comforted. And the word comforted there is one that would be familiar to you because it's the same word that we use when we talk about the Holy Spirit as our comforter, our paraclete, the one who comforts us. So the comfort that's being promised here is specifically a spiritual, a Holy Spirit comforting, a kind of spiritual healing. To those who are too humble to boast anything, Christ promises an inheritance. 
You may go through life believing that you can't presume on anything, that you have nothing to expect in the future. And yet Jesus comes and says, you are an heir of all things. You will inherit the kingdom, and in that way you will be blessed. To those who are empty, Christ promises fullness. That blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not because they're fighting in a lost cause, but at least they're fighting, but because the cause isn't lost. Because those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. So the realizations that Jesus is talking about here are not the realizations of a sinner. They are the realizations of a believer. Because he's not just calling us out on our true condition before God. He's also speaking to us of our true condition in Christ. Just as certain spiritual realizations bring us to repentance, the Beatitudes are a catalyst for deeper realizations than that go beyond our sinfulness in order to understand our blessedness. To be able to say to ourselves, in Christ I possess a kingdom. In Christ I'm comforted by the Spirit. In Christ I've become a fellow heir with Him. Brothers and sisters, to inherit all that is His. In Christ, my longing for God will be satisfied. These are the realizations of those whose faith is in Christ. You are who you are in Christ. And that means realizing that you are blessed. If to be poor in spirit is something like recognizing our depravity, which leads us to the mourning of repentance, and then we might say that these two things produce in us a kind of humility or meekness, a humble dependence on God, and out of that comes a hunger for righteousness, all of that is true. Jesus is saying that, but he's going farther than that and speaking to us of a blessedness of belief in him, a blessedness of dependence upon him. The kind of meekness that he speaks of here, the Bible gives us two great examples of meekness, two role models of meekness to look up to. One of them is Moses, the mediator of the old covenant. The other, of course, is Jesus who is the mediator of the new covenant, and they are different cases. Moses doesn't begin meek, he begins the opposite of meek. He begins kind of entitled and acts that way. And then through a series of defeats and disappointments, he is brought low and he is humbled until in his old age, he is a vessel that God uses to bring about the deliverance of his people. Moses is whipped into shape by God over time in a way that we can relate to because something similar is happening to us by the power of the Spirit. But Jesus was always meek and lowly. Jesus came into the world as one who had set his crown aside in order to become these things, to become poor in spirit, to to enter in with those who mourn to hunger and thirst alongside with us. This is who Jesus was. He was meek and lowly. In other words, he always possessed an absolute dependence upon the Father. Jesus, at at the core of who he was, always manifested an absolute dependence upon the Father. He did his Father's will. He spoke his Father's word. As great as he was, 
And as willing as we would have been to follow him anywhere, he said, I follow the Father. I'm dependent upon him. The thing that keeps us from recognizing our true condition, from from recognizing who we are before God, is pride. The thing that makes it impossible for us to admit our shortcomings is ultimately pride. We don't admit what we are because to admit what we are would lead to shame. And so we seek do anything but. But if you look at the example of Jesus, you have to see that the admission of utter dependence upon the Father is not shameful. There's no shame in our absolute dependence because Jesus was always that way. Jesus was always meek in this way. There was nothing shameful about it. It's only our sin that tells us there's something to be ashamed of in our dependence upon him. But as the Spirit makes you more and more like the meek and lowly Jesus, may you come to see who you truly are. And as you come to see who you truly are, I pray that you will see yourself not only as you are before God, but that you will see yourself as who you are in Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.